The next chapter with Prims Ripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next chapter, executive produced by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. I'm Prim, your host. Well, this week's guest is Stanley Cup champion, six-time NHL All-Star, Olympic gold medalist, and World Cup junior champion, Theo Fleury. What made Theo's athletic career so special is not just what he did on the ice, but how he did it. The scrappiness and grittiness that he played with was just unparalleled. There were a lot of doubters who said the five foot six, 180 pound Canadian would never be able to make it at the pro level. And he made it a point to prove every single one of those doubters wrong. He was one of the smallest players of his generation. And yet he played with a fearlessness, a physicality that suggested otherwise. So one might wonder, how was he able to play with such an edge? And where did this aggression come from? The answer to that may lie in the stories of his past, a dark past filled with abuse, trauma, and addiction. In this interview, Theo talks about what it was like to grow up in a household where both parents were addicts and to be a victim of sexual abuse. In his case, being raped dozens of times by one of his junior coaches and to almost pull the trigger and end his life in 2004. It's one of the most moving interviews I've ever done. And I found myself in tears multiple times during our conversation. And if you're going through a difficult time right now, this just might be the inspiration you need to hear right now. So without further ado, here's Theo Flurry. been interviewed thousands of times what's the one thing people have not asked you about that you think they should ask you about (laughs) oh man i don't know i don't think there's any stone that hasn't been unturned you know nothing my life's an open book no pun intended and i think that uh you know every question that's needed to be asked has been asked and uh answered uh, the best way I know how possible, which is honesty, openness, and willingness. But your life always hasn't been an open book. It sounds like mm. after you had written your book in 2009, that was kind of the impetus for you yeah. opening up and sharing your story in ways maybe that you didn't originally intended to. No. Like when I when I sat down to write the book, I was just going to talk about my hockey career, you know, Mm -hmm. the lady that helped me write the book, you know, early on in the process of writing the book, you know, she obviously made me feel safe and I trusted her. And then it just flowed, you know, Uh, it just started coming out. And, uh, you know, I would say uh, the process of writing the book and also, um, you know, the book sort of coming out to the world uh, truly changed my life for like forever. And it was incredibly cathartic. It was uh, incredibly inspiring uh, for me because of the amount of people um, that after the book came out, came up to me and started telling me their own stories. And, uh, you know, that hasn't stopped. You know, I would say, in the last 13 years, I would say there's probably close to a million people have either directly or indirectly shared their sexual abuse story with me. And, uh, oh, wow. it's been, it's been incredible. That's amazing. Um, talk about a response. And I know you've mentioned before that the book allowed you to kind of own your voice and in that book playing with fire in 2009, you shared a lot about your hockey story and, and your struggle with addiction and stuff. And you and I have gotten to know each other and had the opportunity to work through the organization that we're both partnered up with. And you do most of the work. You do a lot of the work with Eric Cusin and uh, Darren Ravel. It's called We're All a Little Crazy. But for those that don't, don't know, it's an initiative that really focuses on aiming 
and raising awareness regarding mental health um, and using athletes, but also just celebrities in general as a platform to help spread the word. But, you know, Theo, everyone has their own definition of mental health as it relates to their own personal journey and story. It means a lot of things to different people Mm -hmm. because as we know it, 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 it exists on a spectrum. So what does mental health mean to you? I get a daily reprieve based on my spiritual condition. That's what I consider, you know, mental illness is, you know, it's sort of a a three pronged thing. So it's emotional, it's physical and it's spiritual. And, uh, but for me, uh, the spiritual component was the thing that really catapulted me into the next level of self-awareness, self-care, connection, relationship, because ultimately I I believe that spirituality is relationship Mm -hmm. because the relationship that I neglected the most when I was struggling was the one I had with myself. Right. And after my abuser left my life, I took over the abuse and abused myself because I didn't believe that I deserved anything better than, than what I had already received. Right. And so I was left with, you know, ideologies of abandonment and neglect. Uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. Do I even exist? Were based on all the triggers that I had, right? I always went to either one or all four of those things. And so when I wrote the second book, Conversation with the Rattlesnake, the lady that I was working with basically said to me, I can rewire your brain. I can rewire all your trauma. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, originally. And, and, uh, she said, no, I I can, I can help rewire your brain. You know, I'm a poker player as well. And so I basically shoved all my chips in the middle of the table and I said, I'm all in, show me how to do that. And so through the process of four years, this relationship I had with Kim Barthel, which was a therapeutic friendship, you know, everybody thinks that Kim is my therapist, but she's not, you know, she's my friend who's really brilliant and smart and, and, uh, covers all the bases. And through that process, you know, I learned so much about myself and, and, you know, I learned compassion. I learned empathy. I learned, you know, all these important things that, that, uh, you know, that helped me as a, as a coach, as a healer, as an inspirational person, you know, all of those things as a listener, as you know, all those things. And so it was an incredible process, the Mm. transformation that I went through writing the second book, because everybody was coming up to me after the first book. And they said, you know, I read your book. I was so inspired to find the courage to tell my own story. But what do I do now? Mm. Like, what do I do now to get, to get better? And so we followed that up with conversation with the rattlesnake where we really sort of modeled a conversation that people need to have in the real world to help others overcome, you know, trauma, mental illness and addiction issues, right? Because there's so much stigma attached to all three of those things and Mm -hmm. trauma, mental health and addiction live in the same house. They're not separate, right? Yeah. And what we haven't done is we haven't done a really great job of allowing people to talk about their trauma, right? Because trauma is the catalyst here. The the core of every single issue we have in society starts with trauma. And it doesn't have to be as extreme as my story. Mm -hmm. It can be as simple as, you know, being bullied in school or your parents were divorced when you were young or, you know, there's lots of different ways that trauma presents itself. And then that trauma leaves us in emotional pain and suffering. And you can't see it. You can't see emotional pain. You can't see that, right? So how do we deal with this emotional pain that's left behind? Well, we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life and we get involved in addictions as a coping mechanism to suppress the emotional pain. Alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, workaholism, all of these things, you know, become part of our coping mechanism, right? But eventually we get to that place where we got to make a decision. And am, am I going to die or am I going to live? Right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, 16 years ago, you know, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth ready to pull the trigger. Mm. Not because I wanted to die, but because I was completely exhausted from living in emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. Mm-hmm. When I couldn't pull the trigger, that was the moment when I, when I said to myself, okay, well, you don't want to die and you want to live well you can't live the way that you've been living so you know you got to make some changes and that was really sort of the turning point in my life where i started on this journey of healing and self-discovery and you know all of these things and so you know it's been an incredible transformation and uh there was lots of professionals in treatment centers basically said to me guys like you don't make it like you don't make it back wow with the amount of trauma that you've experienced, guys like you don't make it back. And, you know, me being a highly competitive guy, you know, I use that as motivation. Right. And, and, uh, said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Right. And to me, that's willingness, right. There has to be a certain amount of willingness on my part to do whatever it takes to get better. Mm-hmm. I do want to hear a little bit more about that trauma and just to get your story out, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that could relate, um, even if their their experiences were very different. But I think trauma has so many comes in so many different shapes and sizes. But I want to hear a little bit more about that breaking point. I think it happened around right after you retired, I believe, yeah. when you were sitting there and you were thinking about suicide and you had the pistol in your mouth and can you just take us through that moment Mm. and what had caused it to get so far to that point and what do you remember of that right well both my parents experienced childhood trauma in their life and that manifested itself into addictions as a coping mechanism so i grew up in a home of chaos and you know some violence but it was always volatile unpredictable craziness right So when I was five years old, I discovered hockey and absolutely fell in love with the game of hockey instantly because when I was at the rink, guess what? I didn't have to be at home. And not only that, I was really, really good at it as well, which, you know, fueled more of that desire. That was my first experience with trauma. And so as I started to climb the ranks, you know, and I had this dream of like every kid's dream in Canada who plays hockey, they want to play in the NHL. And so that was my focus. That was my goal. That was my dream. And so I I run into this guy who basically promised me a one-way ticket to the NHL. I was a part of the very first Bantam draft that was ever held in the Western Hockey League. So I got drafted when I was 14. And so the summer after I got drafted by this team in Winnipeg, this guy came to my house, sat my parents around the kitchen table and basically said, we think Theo needs better coaching, better competition. You know, every day after school, he can practice with the big team and all this stuff. My parents knew from day one what I wanted to do. And so they didn't hold me back. And so I moved to Winnipeg when I was 15 years old. And this guy who brought me there over the next two and a half years would rape me 150 times over a two and a half year period. Obviously, I was left with a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of anger, and a lot of resentment. And there wasn't one person in the world I could have told because I knew that if I told, first of all, I wouldn't be believed. And then secondly, I knew that that would be the end of my hockey career, right? Because I'd be labeled as a troublemaker and you know Mm. liar and stuff right so i kept it inside and uh wasn't too long after that i discovered alcohol as a coping mechanism and i remember from the very first sip you know i was hooked and so i went on to have this amazing hockey career being a very high functioning alcoholic and drug addict you know the thing about addiction is your addiction never gets better it gets worse and worse and You know, and then I added cocaine to, you know, my mixture of coping mechanism. And, you know, when you do that, it's a really fast trip to the bottom of the gutter. And that's where this all led. In 2003, I got kicked out of the NHL because I couldn't stop drinking, couldn't stop doing drugs. My behavior was out of control. and, And I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico 
of all places, because I'd gone to a trauma treatment facility there and got some clean time. Actually, I made the Olympic team in 2002 after spending a whole summer in Santa Fe. I actually bought a house there and moved there. I got my first sponsor, all that stuff. And I was like, I was clean for 14 months and clean just long enough to make the Olympic team in, in 2002 and go through that whole experience. And as soon as, as soon as we won the Olympics uh, in 2002, I should have retired. I should have just stopped playing because I'd accomplished everything I'd ac- needed to accomplish in, in my sport. And, but people kept offering me contracts and kept offering me money to play and, uh, you know, obviously I couldn't turn that down. And, uh, you know, I went to Chicago after New York and it was just a complete disaster because my mental illness showed up in New York for the first time. And how old were you then? I think I was like 31, maybe 30, 31. Mm-hmm. And my mental illness showed up 20 some years ago. Nobody was talking about mental illness. Right. So when I went to the team doctor, what did he do? He got his script pad out and, uh, you know, wrote, wrote a script for uh, clonazepam. And, you know, obviously I got hooked on that. And uh, it was just a crazy ride for the next three years. And, and then ultimately I had been up for, I don't even know, seven or eight days without any sleep. And I was in oh, wow. drug-induced psychosis in the desert. And... Uh, I jumped in my truck, drove down to the local pawn shop and, and, uh, you know, I, I never left the house with no less than $5,000 in cash in my pocket at all times because I could never predict what was going to happen after one drink. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I could start in Santa Fe and end up in Miami. You know what I mean? That's the kind of guy I was. Right. And I had lots of resources, you know, I made $50 million in my hockey career. So I walk in the pawn shop, I take this wad of cash out and I slam it on the table and I say to the guy, I need, I need a gun and some bullets. And about 45 seconds later, I'm back in my truck with the gun and the bullets driving home. You know, I had this amazing house, like 6,000 square foot house in the middle of the Sando de Cristo mountains in the desert. I was living on two Jack Nicholas golf courses. And so I had this amazing home theater room with this massive coffee table and so I put the gun and the bullets on a, on the table and I poured out a whole bunch of cocaine out of Scarface and chopped up a whole bunch of lines, snorted some lines, took a bottle of vodka, drank about a third of the vodka. And I sat back and I reflected on my life. You know, all the horrible things that happened, all the amazing things that happened was like a movie playing in my head. And then I don't know how long I sat there, but. I finally got up the courage. I loaded the gun. I put the gun in my mouth and I remember it rattling against my teeth. And I remember what it tasted like. And in this movies playing in my head and then right at the moment of truth, when it was time to pull the trigger, this little voice in my head said, you never quit anything in your life. Why are you quitting now? Mm. And that allowed me to take the gun and throw it into the desert. And I, and then, you know, I had two choices that day. Was I going to die or was I going to live? And, and so I chose to live, but I have no clue how to live life on life's terms. Right. All I know how to do is cope. Yeah. And I can't identify feelings. I don't know if I'm happy. I don't know if I'm sad. I don't know if I'm angry. I don't, I don't know anything. Right. And that really started that whole entire process of healing Shortly after that, I moved back to Calgary here because I knew if I was going to get my life straightened around, it was going to happen here because my kids were here, my ex-wives were here, my old teammates were here. You know, this was kind of my my home. Calgary was my home. Mm-hmm. Today, I have 5,740 days of continuous sobriety, and that happened in September. Wow. September 18th of 2005. 2005. That's when this this whole journey started, right? It's been wild. It's been a wild ride, let me tell you. I don't know if it is appropriate to say congratulations or if it's seen as an accomplishment. But I think it's one of those things. I was actually uh, recently talking to 
former Ohio State and NFL standout Robert Smith. And he was sharing his story about addiction and everybody processes their date and their path of sobriety so differently. And he was saying for him, it's not so much celebratory, but just kind of like taking it one day at a time. I think for him, it's not so much getting too far ahead to celebrate because- That's why I don't say I have 15 years of sobriety Yeah, because addiction is a one day at a time thing. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. What you try and do is you try and find a daily routine that's going to keep you sober one day at a time. Tomorrow I might drink. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The interesting part is- If I think about the past, that's depression. If I think about the future, that's anxiety. So what does that tell me? That tells me that I need to live in the present and in the moment as much as possible, which is really hard for people like us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to kind of bring this all back full circle and why I'm involved with same here is, you know, Eric reached out to me shortly after he told his story because I was telling my story completely different than all of the other celebrities and athletes out there because I wasn't using labels. I was just throwing this shit right in your face saying I was raped. I grew up in this crazy home, all this stuff, right? And not only that, I was taking a very holistic approach to my healing. Mm -hmm which nobody was really talking about because it's kind of like big pharma owns mental health, right? And they don't want guys like me talking about breathing exercises and meditation and manifesting and, you know, and exercise and, you know, vitamin D and eating, you know, eating well and taking care of yourself. They don't want any part of that. Yeah. They want to write as many scripts as they possibly can from the time you are born until the time you leave the earth. That's their whole marketing plan. It's been a huge success for them. They've they've made billions and billions of dollars, but they've also killed billions of people as well at the same time. And part of my spiritual journey is I hang around with one of the most powerful medicine men in the world, in the indigenous community. And I do ceremony with him. Okay. So I go, I participate in sweat lodge, drumming circles. I go to powwows. I go to sun dances. You know, that's what's really changed, changed my life. And what he tells me is because he takes people from the Tom Baker cancer center here in Calgary, who've been given four months to live and cures them Hmm. with plant medicine and what he tells me is that there's a cure for every disease on the planet and it doesn't come in a pill form it comes in a you know a plant different kinds of plants that are out there that we think are useless like i have tobacco sweet grass sage in my house and i'm i'm using that as my medicine every morning you know to meditate you know i light a smudge and I smudge myself off and I pray and I meditate. So do you not take any medication in the traditional sense that we know it, the pill form? Nothing. Nothing. Wow. No, because he gives me, he gives me medicine all the time. Mm -hmm. I even have medicine for COVID that he gave me that I've been taking that boosts my immune system. I really believe that the indigenous community around the world has the medicine for everything we need physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I truly, in my heart, believe that that is true. I am a big proponent of the holistic path myself. And I had never really heard anybody describe mental health in the way that you had in terms of a three-prong ap- approach of physical component, emotional component, but also the spiritual component. And I agree with you that um, my journey to healing also involved a a spiritual component as well and developing that relationship and that self-compassion. And, you know, when you talk about your symptoms of addiction emerging to the surface around 31 years old, around that 2003 um, year, I think on the outside, as we're trying to expand the conversation, educate people, because I think there's, there's this conversation and this curiosity and wonder of like, well, why did this happen? How do we how do we diagnose it, diagnose this? And 
what's the thing that set him off? And most of the time, I think a lot of people want to look at recent events. Oh, it must have been his career. Oh, it must have been something that was going on with hockey or a recent relationship or whatever. But I don't think I don't think people really understand. And this is something that I've really learned, although I kind of knew it. It's something I've really learned in my doctoral training is that everybody has the genetic makeup for mental illness and mental health issues. It's usually just life events, potentially trauma, certain triggers that will set it off. And so, you know, when we look back at your childhood and the makeup and your parents suffering from addiction, have you been able to kind of think about the things or the multiple factors, obviously you talked about your abuser that set it off, but more so about from a genetic genetic perspective or your parents or anything else, things that like played into that? I don't know if you ever heard of this lady, but she lives in New York. Her name is Rachel Yehuda. And she's like the epigenetics queen of the universe. So the military in Canada put on the very first post-traumatic stress disorder conference in Canada. And I spoke at the conference. And Rachel was one of the speakers. I got a chance to listen to her and was absolutely blown away at the information she was providing to the audience. Because she did a study on the Holocaust survivors. And what she discovered was this gene, this trauma gene that gets passed down for seven generations. Wow. And in Canada, we have the indigenous community where the residential school survivors, you know, have passed this this, uh, trauma gene down for seven generations. And so, you know, for me, I got to that place like, holy cow, like this really wasn't my fault. Yeah. None of the stuff that happened to me was my fault. So then, you know, I have this accumulation of trauma. And for many, many years, I was able to cope to a certain level and have success and all that, right? And then eventually it just it just hit me like a ton of bricks, right? So September 18th, 2005, I surrendered. And I turn my will in my life over to the care of the universe as I understand it. And what I did is I gave up control. That's surrender. And I turned it over Mm -hmm. to the universe and I trusted in the universe to take care of me for the rest of my life. Because I don't want to make any choices. I don't want to make any more decisions. I just want to be and go with the flow. And what happened when I did that was I stepped in to my true purpose in life because I surrendered and trusted in the universe. The universe said, okay, this guy is ready to fulfill his true purpose, his plan that we had for him even before he was conceived. Hmm. And so I stepped into my purpose, which was to help as many people who had the same experience get to the other side like I did. And I got out of the driver's seat because every time I drive the bus, the bus crashes and I sit comfortably in the passenger seat and I don't question anything anymore. And the only time I get in trouble now is when I, when I start to take back that control, which means I'm not spiritually connected and I need to insert more spirituality because when Mm -hmm. I'm spiritually connected, I don't give a shit about anything. I'm good. Mm -hmm. It's the medicine that nobody talks about. You can probably see now, and I might be getting a little political here, but they're trying to take God out of the equation. They're removing God from from our vocabulary. Like in Canada, they're barricading churches and they're shutting down churches and they're really trying with all their might to take God out of the equation. And when you take God or Allah, Buddha, Jehovah, whatever you call your thing, what happens? Chaos, craziness happens when we're all spiritually disconnected. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, when I'm connected to this power greater than myself, whatever you call it, I'm good. I'm strong. You can throw anything at me. I'm going to figure it out. You know, you talked about 
different coping mechanisms and how everything was just your the trauma and all the experiences that you had uh, seen and observed and experienced as a child were just kind of like bubbling and you finally hit this edge and you just couldn't it was just like a pressure cooker you just couldn't take it anymore well my nervous system shut down oh wow years of me sort of bathing in cortisol which is our stress hormone and cortisol is like acid in our body. And what's the opposite of, of cortisol? Oxytocin. And what's oxytocin? Oxytocin is the drug of love and connection that we, that we produce in our body. Mm-hmm. And when I connected to myself, I was producing way more oxytocin than I was cortisol, right? And when I connected back to myself is when I stopped producing cortisol and I started producing more oxytocin and, and, and it allowed me to not get more, how do I put it mentally ill than I already was. It actually started to reverse the process Mm -hmm. where I could live life on life's terms, no matter which, what was thrown at me, you know, I wasn't going to freak out and I wasn't going to have a meltdown or any of that stuff. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like when you're talking about these coping mechanisms, where does hockey come into the conversation? Because I think this is also an important part of the conversation because a lot of people will be somewhat confused as to, well, Theo has everything. He's he's this force on the ice, this all-star, the Stanley Cup champ, a gold medal winner, super successful. He has everything in the world. Why would he have these issues? But it's almost like athletes, what what is able to allow them to seek so well in sports can also be their demise. And it sounds like you're running these two parallel tracks where the same genes and the same characteristics or qualities, whatever you want to call it, allowed you to succeed in sports. And it might have allowed you to fall apart personally. Well, I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you, but it makes sense to me. So... I read Malcolm Gladwell's book called The Outliers. Yeah. There's a chapter in the book that says, if we want to be the elite of the elite of the elite of the elite in whatever field we choose, we have to put in 10,000 hours of practice. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after reading that chapter, I closed the book and I reflected on my childhood. And guess what I did? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, skate, shoot, pass, skate, shoot, pass, skate, shoot, pass, hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. So when I left home at 15, guess what? I already had 10,000 hours of practice. So when I stepped onto the playing field, I never had to think because my sport is a reactionary sport. And if I have to think about where I'm supposed to be on the ice, I'm in big trouble because the puck moves faster than I can skate. So when I stepped on the ice, I didn't have to think. And hockey was so easy for me. It was simple because I didn't have to think. Mm -hmm. But when I left the arena, that's when I got in trouble because I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. So your addiction was manifesting itself into what we would think, consider as Oh, Theo has this unbelievable work ethic and he's training 24 seven. I was a workaholic. Yeah. I was a workaholic. I was avoiding the reality of what I was facing. That's why when I left the rink, I got in trouble too much time on my hands, not focused, you know? So anybody that wanted to fucking party and drink and hang out. Yeah, let's do it. But I'd be in a room, I'd be in a bar, 5,000 people in the bar. I felt completely alone. Hmm. So that's the only way I can explain, you know? I think that makes a lot of sense. How old were you when you, when you read that Gladwell book? Oh, it was after my book came out because people started, well, your book's so great. You should read this book and read this book and read this book. And I was traveling. Oh, man. Like, I've done 800 speeches in 13 years. <laughs> so I'm on a lot of planes. I'm in a lot of airports. And so, you know, I always have a book with me. Yeah. Not that I read them all, but uh, I have <laughs> I have one with me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I read that book actually after my, my book came out. And it, and it made perfect sense to me how he put that. 
you know? No, I, I've definitely read the book. I think a lot of people have read that book. And I think a lot of athletes or really anybody that excels in anything that they do can attest to that. Although there has been research um, coming from it from a psychological perspective, there has been research that has said almost like disproven it a little bit where the argument is more so that it has to be purposeful practice rather than just mindless 10,000 hours. No, no, no. Mine was very purpose. Purposeful. I have no doubt. Yeah. You have proven to all of us that your work was very intentional. <laughs> but there was a whole bunch of other intangibles too, right? You know, that that made me, you know, the, the athlete that I was. But at the end of the day, I always tell people, I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else. There is nothing glamorous about being a professional athlete. Nothing. Nothing glamorous at all. Just the paycheck. That's it. Because I spent 40 years in arenas, hotels, airports, on buses, and that was about it. You know, ask my kids how many dance recitals, hockey games, Christmas concerts, you name it, that I missed because I was chasing mm-hmm. my dream, right? So there's nothing glamorous about being a professional athlete. You know, the amount of pressure, the amount of criticism. I used to always love the one where the reporter would question, you know, people's character, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would go right after them, you know, and say, are you fucking kidding me? You know, <laughs> what have you done? What adversity have you faced? You know, never, never question character. Mm-hmm. That was always a big, that was always a big trigger for me all the time. Reflecting back on when you were in, in the junior league and about to step foot into the professional aspect. And there were a lot of doubters, a lot of naysayers saying, you know, Theo's too small, you know, you were, but that's how you made your name. You were fast, you're scrappy and gritty and powerful. You know what? I was really angry and full of rage. (laughs) Well, that's that's what I was about to say. And I think your story kind of makes me think a little bit of Mike Tyson's story. And only because we, I I just did one of my, my first episodes. We're the same. He, as a child, also experienced sexual abuse and trauma, came from an extremely volatile household. But for him, stepping inside of the ring, he had all this anger and rage, but it was so simple for him to step in the ring as a competitor because compared to his home life and his childhood, that was an absolute nightmare. So I'm curious about how your childhood, similar to Tyson's, fueled that grittiness and your ability to just like go out there onto the ice and be crazy aggressive. I went to the best anger management class in the world called the NHL. (laughs) I can go on the ice and beat the crap out of somebody or they beat the crap out of me. And I go sit in the box for five minutes and there wasn't a police officer there with handcuffs ready to charge me with assault because that's basically what I was doing. (laughs) You know, I'd sit in there for five minutes and then I get to go back out and do it all over again. So I could place my anger in that 200 by 85 box every single night. (laughs) And and I was coached that way too. Every coach I had had me walking on that tightrope. Huh where I could fall on either side, but they wanted me angry and they wanted me full of rage because when I was there, that's when I was at my best, when I was on the edge. And that's what's crazy about sports is that it is lauded and celebrated, but from a healthy and personal perspective, that (laughs) seems like... It's not healthy. No, it's not. (laughs) That seems like a really awful way to live. Yeah. It was, you know, it was. And, you know, I I remember my childhood and I was just this awesome kid, you know, focused, polite, respectful, you know, really. And I turned into this like nightmare, you know, just a nightmare. And I'm like, holy, like, what the hell happened? Right. And I've somewhat gotten back to that little guy that I used to be, you know, and that's that's called therapy that's called healing that's called self-discovery that's you know all of those things and so um, you know obviously I've done a lot of inner child work sure I find it to be one of the most effective because you know I, I 
I, I do workshops. I recently, during COVID, d- designed a, a course online called Trauma Transformation. I have 200 members. And twice a month, I lead a group online. And some of the most incredible nights that we have together is when we do inner child work. Mm. People have this perception of themselves, but when they tap into that little person that's still inside of them, oh my God, it's um, unbelievable. Some of the healing that comes out of doing that that kind of work, you know, and so I love it. I love it. I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but for me sitting in the client chair for 10 years and a lot of times my therapist will dig into the childhood aspect and the dynamics in your family and all this stuff. And she'll often have me do exercises where it's like, well, if the little girl, the five-year-old Prim was sitting right there, what would she say? And you like literally talk to her and it's like, what does she want? What does she need? Because there's that piece of you that along the way gets lost and conditioned. You try to please people. You try to please your family, your expectations, coping, all this stuff. So what was that inner child work like for you? And what did you discover? I discovered that my little guy that lives inside me is actually way better conditioned than the adult me. He's doing way better than I am, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so, you know, that's where I get the inspiration to get back to that, you know, that little guy that I, you know, that I was. Why do you think that is? Can you explain a little bit more? Because people may not really understand why. Because I had a perception that even though he was going through all of this stuff, he still had everything he needed, right? Hmm. Because when we play sports... And why do we put our kids in sports? We put our kids in sports not to produce professional athletes. We put our kids in sports to produce quality human beings. Okay. So when I was six years old, I moved to this incredible small town in Manitoba of 1,500 people. And when I got there at age six, it just so happened that the 13 best athletes in this little town were all six years old. (laughs) Not only that, we had three incredible, amazing fathers who became our coaches and became our mentors. And they taught us more in the life part than they did the actual on ice part. Mm. So I had incredible morals instilled in me right from day one. Okay. Mm. And, and that's who that little guy is, you know, the big guy, this guy who has, you know, who's living with all this trauma is angry, full of rage, combative all the time, way too competitive, way too serious, you know, all these things. And, you know, I just had to get back to playing, you know, mm-hmm. you know, because I grew up way too fast. I grew up way too fast. Like I left home when I was 15 years old. And then I was in this really messed up relationship with this guy who was abusing me and manipulating me for two and a half years. So how can I not be messed up from that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Here's it all in a nutshell. I came to a place where. I realized that, you know, my parents are a gift. My abuser is a gift in my life. Okay. Because without those experiences, I'm not here talking to you right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I came to a level of self-forgiveness. I realized that none of this is my fault. And it allowed me to become you know, this person that I am today, you know, who has compassion, who has empathy, who is less angry, less full of rage. And, you know, um, and I also know that I'm in therapy for the rest of my life and I'm okay with that. Like I really Mm -hmm. am. I'm okay with that. I would have never thought in my wildest dreams that my post hockey career would have a bigger impact than my actual playing career. 
You know what I mean? And yeah. I would trade all of it. I would trade the World Junior, the Stanley Cup, the Canada Cup, the Olympic gold medal. I would trade it all to change somebody's life. I would. I really would. Because at the end of the day, that stuff doesn't really matter in the big, big, big picture. Right. The biggest epidemic on the planet is trauma, mental health, and addiction. All of these events led me to this place and put me in the biggest epidemic on the planet. Do you think that happened by coincidence? No, it was part of the yeah. plan. It was part of the plan, but I needed to surrender and I needed to give up control first. And when I did that, all of this stuff started lining up. It's so powerful. It gives me chills. It brings me to tears to hear you say that your parents and your abuser were a gift. I mean, I don't think I've ever really heard anybody put it like that and communicated in that sense, because to say that your abuser and people that caused you so much trauma and pain and to put it in the same sentence and marry it with gift requires such acceptance. Yeah. And I don't, when did you get to that point? <laughs> You're so good at interviewing because you just lead into all these great <laughs> Well, I think it's also sitting in the client chair too, right. if I have to yes. be honest. Yes. I mean, you know. <laughs> and that is going to be your next profession. So you're going to be fantastic, <laughs> wonderful. I might have to book a session with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. So when I was writing the second book, Kim and I set an intention. And we, we had no idea. We're just like, wouldn't it be great to go work in the prison system? <sighs> So we just put, the, put it out in the universe, right? And that has come to fruition. I work in the prison system in Canada. I've been to 25 maximum, minimum, and medium security prisons working with inmates. So one of the first visits that Kim and I did was at a place called Stony Mountain Penitentiary, which is one of the biggest prisons in Canada. And it's, medium, uh, it's maximum, medium, and minimum security prison. And this place is in the middle of nowhere. And it's like this big fortress. It looks, it, it's just hilarious. So we show up and uh, we have 400 inmates in our audience, in the gym, in the prison. And then all the people who work with these guys in the prison. So the whole place is completely traumatized. <laughs> Gosh. The guards... The psychiatrist, psychologist, you know, everybody's traumatized. Okay. Thank God they have a very young warden there who thinks outside the box. So he basically just let us go in there and do whatever we wanted to do with these guys for the whole day. Wow. So what Kim and I do is, and what we're really good at is we're really good at creating a safe space, a safe environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because this place is volatile, like, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? So safety is in the room. And guys are getting up and they're telling their stories of childhood abuse and sexual abuse and like just being so vulnerable, okay? Yeah. So about halfway through the day, I look out into the audience and I see this kid sitting way in the back row and he can't even sit in his chair. He's so engaged. So I say, hey, you got something to say? He stands up. He looks exactly like Eminem, the rapper. Okay. He's got the flat beat cap. He's got tattoos from his neck. He's cool. <laughs> so the first thing out of his mouth, he says, Theo Fleury says, you're my hero. I was like, whoa, okay. Where's this, where's this going, right? And he says, as you can see, he says, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. And he said, I used to be a really great hockey player. And he said, when I was 14 years old, he said, I grew up in the north end of Winnipeg, which is a really bad area in Winnipeg. And he said, I started selling drugs. And he said, I've been in and out of jail ever since. Hmm. So then he says, you'll never guess who I was with three weeks ago in Grand Cash, Alberta. I said, I don't know. Who are you with? He said, I was with Graham James. The guy that abused me, he was in jail with my abuser. Okay? Oh, my gosh. Okay? And he said, oh my gosh. because you're my hero, 
my sole intent while I was in that prison with that guy was I was going to beat the crap out of him for you. But he said, Graham is very heavily guarded because everybody wants to beat the crap out of this guy. Oh, my gosh. So he said, I waited and I waited and I waited. And he said, I got my chance. He said, the guards left his room. I walked into his room and he wasn't there. So he said, I started searching around. So he said, I went to the left side of the bed. He wasn't there. So I went over to the right side of the bed and there he was curled up in a ball in the fetal position. And he said to me, he said, I didn't do anything. You know what I said to the kid? I said, you're my hero for not doing anything. (sighs) And that was the moment that I forgave myself (sighs) for everything that happened. Because my abusers curled up in a ball in the fetal position in a prison. So my abuser is in pain and is suffering. Yeah. Guess what? I'm not. I'm in a prison helping these guys come to terms with their own abuse. Yeah. Like I live for that shit. Like that's what gets me out of bed every day is that kind of healing. Yeah. Because I know it's possible. I've seen it with my own eyes. Like another story is I had a guy in my audience. We were doing a workshop. There's about a hundred people in our workshop. He stood up and he said, I've never felt this safe in a room full of a bunch of strangers in my whole entire life. And he said, I've been carrying around a secret for many, many years. And he said, I want everybody in this room to know that I molested my sister for about 11 years. Oh, wow. Well, there was three women in my audience who had been molested by their brothers. You know what they did? Oh, my gosh. They got out of their chairs, went over to this man and hugged him. Wow. That's healing. That's what healing looks like. And so you've gotten to see, you've gotten to witness what forgiveness looks like time and time again. And so you, by by seeing that and seeing other people engage in that process, then you, that allows you to do that too. To be able to facilitate that stuff. Yeah. There's no better feeling in the world. When I won the Olympics, doesn't even compare Mm. to witnessing that kind of healing. You know what I mean? Like it's just, yeah, the world needs to heal. The world needs to heal. Yeah. It is so full of anger and division and rage. And all this stuff, you know, and when I see stuff like that, I, I think we could do it as a society, as humanity, as all those things. We've gotten off the rails. I've seen it with my own eyes. So I know that it's possible. I know this. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we have seven and a half billion traumatized people and there's not enough skill to heal all the trauma. Mm. There's not enough skilled people who can bring that kind of healing out of the shadows. But I tell you, I'm going to keep trying until, you know, cause I don't, you know, I don't know how to lose. I don't, you know, I don't know how to lose. I love that. And when I do, it just makes me want to win more, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's such an awesome thing to say. Like, I don't really know how to lose. I think it's it's interesting about how you've found so much purpose and your life purpose after sport. Because I think to sports fans and people within the sports world, they look at you and all these other elite athletes and they say, well, that's obviously their life purpose. And the buck stops there and their story stops there. But as we know, life goes on. And so that's what this show is all about, is helping athletes find who they are beyond the world of sport. And so I'd love to hear what kind of advice you would have to share with other athletes to give them that sense of hope. And I've been hearing it again and again from you and your story. I recently spoke to uh, Nolan Smith, a former basketball and NBA player, and recently promoted to assistant coach for the Duke men's basketball team. And he talked about how his injury, which ended his basketball, professional basketball career, 
led him to his wife and forever love. I also recently talked to John Shire, who was just named the Duke men's basketball head coach to follow Coach Krzyzewski, which is a huge role. Uh, And he also talked about, yeah, he also talked about how this freak eye injury allowed him to go back to coaching way earlier than he expected. And look where he is now. So what kind of advice or anything else would you try to share with athletes who feel as though once their career is done, that everything has fallen apart? Well, you know, I see it in the hockey world all the time. Yeah. When I was retired, I used to tour. We used to do a tour across Canada playing against all the fire fire halls and, and police forces raising money for different charities, right? And so I used to hang around with a bunch of ex-hockey players and these guys were like in their 50s and their their 60s and they were still acting the same way (laughs) the same way they were when they were playing and I was just like you know what that's not who I want to be you know Mm -hmm. I have all this incredible experience because I played for some of the greatest leaders the, the game has ever seen, right? You know, Gretzky, yeah. Messier, Sackick, Iserman, you know, the list goes on and on and on, you know? And, and I had to find the courage to tell my story. Mm-hmm. And I, that's what I would say to ex-professional athletes is, you know, vulnerability is okay. Vulnerability is courage. Vulnerability allows you to create safe spaces in the environment for other people to do the same. So, you know, yeah, talk about your eye injury, talk about adversity and how you overcame adversity to get to where you are today. Yeah. I realize that there's always been a plan for my life. And the only time the plan goes sideways is when I have control of it, when I'm in control of the plan. And, you know, when I surrendered and I turned my will and my life over to something else, something higher, something of more purpose, so to speak. Um, I stepped into my true purpose in life, right? And that was to help people. And the more people I've helped, guess what? The more I've healed myself because we have these wonderful things in our brain called mirror neurons, right? Mm. So in your eyes, I see myself, right? And when I'm working with people, I see myself in their pain and in their suffering, right? And I'm so grateful to where I am today because I remember when I was in that much pain and there was no solution. Like, I think being a part of a team for the first 40 years of my life really set me up for being a leader in this space, Yeah. right? All those things that I learned about being a part of it, being a part of a team, you know, serves me really, really well now. And I really believe it's my vulnerability that, that, you know, has, has created this, you know, this new life that I have that I'm willing to pretty much talk about anything. I'm not afraid to, I'm not scared to, you know, uh, it's often funny, you know, when I stand on a stage and I say to my audience, you know, I was raped 150 times by my coach, right? And the whole entire audience, their heads hit the floor in shame. So they portray that shame back onto me, but I got no more shame, right? Because I can say it a matter as a matter of factly, you know, the way that I say it. And I think that's what we need to understand is that everybody goes through stuff in their life. And it would, it's what makes you who you are, right? That piece makes you who you are. And if you find the strength and the hope in that struggle, right, you know, um, in all the mistakes you made, as long as you learn from them, right, that's why we make mistakes. It's the only way we learn. It's the only way we learn. And then take that experience or that mistake or that trauma and turn it into something good That's what it's all about. Not letting those things define you and you taking control of it. Find the gift in your pain and suffering. Find the gift. Mm. Find the gift because it's there. It's there. That's why we go through it. Some of us exit way too early. We give up way too early 
That's why I always say, don't quit before the miracle. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes we do. Yeah. You got to take it to the very end to get to that place, right? So there's a reason why the pain shows up. It's because there's something wrong in, in my world that I need to figure out because somebody else needs that story. And I always say, your story is my story and my story is your story. Hmm. That's what it's all about. But we don't, we don't have a place yet to talk about that story because there's too much stigma. There's too much shame. There's too much guilt. There's too much all that. And when we remove all that, the world is going to be an amazing place. It is. I love the don't stop before, before the miracle. I've never heard of that before, but it is true. It's like, listen, for a lot of the athletes out there or even non-athletes who have been through so much and you've achieved so much. And I think it is, it's so much easier to quit because of all the things in front of you, it's easy to look at the stuff in front of you and say, these are the struggles and this is it for me. Whereas trying to find a way to move forward and move towards that miracle, which it's hard to have faith in the unknown and the uncertainty, but it's all about having that faith. You said the key word, faith. Yeah. You have faith, you can move mountains because it takes you out of the equation. Right. Yeah. And you step into the higher purpose. Yeah. But if you're always like this, you know, because that's how I used to go into every room was like this. Who's going to try and hurt me today? You know, right? Well, and that served you well for your first career. Oh, yeah. You know, you put on the boxing gloves or the hockey gloves and it served you well. But now with the gloves off and then you're making such a wonderful impact. Well, I have to tell you that you are an amazing storyteller. I've gotten the opportunity and I consider a gift to sit here and hear people's stories and have them open it up and share their vulnerabilities and all that. And then some people like get in the habit of just telling their stories and it feels kind of mechanical because you, as we started the interview, have told your story 10,000 times, yeah. but you still have a way of doing it. And, and it's very palpable to see that you're so passionate in what you do. I just want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing it. And we're going to keep working together. We're going to continue to be part of the same here movement. Absolutely. And you're doing such wonderful things. So we're all rooting for you. I said this to Eric one time. I said, you know, Eric, you know what our job is? Our job is to collect people. <laughs> because in my experience, when you turn on the light bulb in somebody, they never leave. And that's been my experience. Yeah, That's been my experience. You know, when you find your tribe, you're never going to leave. Because you get everything you need from that tribe of people. Understanding, compassion, empathy, no judgment, you know, all those things. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're just people. What makes us unique is those trauma experiences. And when you embrace yeah. the trauma and find the gift in it, that's when you become the person you've always wanted to be. Yeah. Because you're allowed to get rid of that once and for all and go, thank you, God, for giving me this opportunity to understand why you gave me this in the first place. And now I will fulfill your purpose, which means that I will go and find that person who had the same experience as me, mm. change their life. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I believe that's what same here is all about. You know, I agree. Eric has done an unbelievable job because he's so friggin' smart connecting all the dots and connecting people, yes. the right people, yeah. good people. Yeah. Absolutely. Because we're all, we're all looking for a different way of doing this because we've been doing it a certain way for a long time. And what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Right. <laughs> And I used to be insane. I used to be insane. <laughs> when Eric called me and said, we're going to call this thing, we're all a little crazy. I go, perfect. <laughs> I go, I'm still crazy. And you're like, sign me up. And that's why I signed up too. I was like, oh my God, this is, of course. I'm still crazy, but it's way more manageable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally insane. 
my my crazy as my husband will gladly speak to i am still crazy but it's like a collected crazy yeah. it's like a chill kind of meditative crazy but i'm still crazy and that's the beauty of it it's what makes us unique and individual at the same time, right? so. yes absolutely well I, I love our tribe i love how you said that it is a little tribe it is a special community and not just the same here movement but all of us that are really passionate about talking about the mental health space and everything and so theo thank you so much for your time today i won't i won't take up the rest of your day i could sit here for hours i'm sure you have many more things to do and many more interviews but i appreciate everything no i thank you for asking me to do this i love talking about this stuff and, and i love sharing my stories the next chapter with Prims to Ripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. radio